Welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Kaslin Fields. Kaslin is a developer advocate at Google. Welcome, Kaslin. Hi, Rich. I'm so excited to be on today. I'm so excited to have you on. I usually start off with people asking a little bit about how they got into computing, what it was that like drew you into it, and also uh, how they got into this awesome and weird and fun Kubernetes community. Yeah, that sounds like a fun place to start. I, I don't know if most people know this, but I'm from a small village in Appalachia in, <laughs> yeah, in Virginia. It's, it's the home of the oldest agricultural fair in the state. And it's near the the resort where part of Dirty Dancing was filmed, so that's oh my those are gosh. our claim to fame. But <laughs> that's a good one. When you say small village, like how many people are we talking? I've actually tried to look it up on the census several times, but it's combined with other local towns and villages, so it's yeah, hard yeah. to tell. Something like a thousand, maybe. Okay, um, that's really small. Yeah. <laughs> my my small Iowa hometown was 9,000. And I felt oh, like wow. that was very small. <laughs> yeah. People always ask me, oh, you must know everyone. But it's in the mountains. So we're all on like different mountaintops. So you don't really know everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I have this vision of you like in a log cabin, like sitting on top of a mountain. Pretty much glamping was a thing a while back. And I was like, oh, that's just my life <laughs> when I lived in Virginia. <laughs> So it was a very small town. There was a, well, village. <laughs> I like to say that. When you look it up, it's actually the village of Newport, not Newport News. Oh, wow. The village of Newport. But, and so there's one high school for the, the county. Technically, I guess there's two, but it's like a different section of the county. Anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's, it's a small high school. A lot of people stay in the area. Both of my parents were engineers, so... I really liked science growing up. I always had to do a lot of uh, science fairs, and my mom always encouraged me to be interested in those types of things. And I really loved computers, because it was right at the right time for a lot of uh, computer games growing up and things like that. So when I got into high school, I had the opportunity to go to a technical school for half the day, where I got to take some computer classes. And that's where I started to learn a little bit about programming. And I thought, hey, I like computers. I had considered maybe aerospace because I love physics and I love airplanes. Not very good at physics though, so that seemed out. <laughs> I'm sure you're much better at physics than I am. So. Yeah. <laughs> I considered several other like scientific fields and eventually I was kind of like, you know what? Computers do everything. So I might as well just do computers. And so that's how I ended up here. And I ended up in Kubernetes because in my first job, I was sitting next to someone. I was in this kind of open office area. Mm -hmm. And someone in the area who was really nice offered to tell anyone who would listen about Docker and containers. <laughs> <laughs> and I was new and I was like, I would like to learn something. Please teach me. And so I ended up learning about containers through that. And then people started asking me questions about containers because they were growing in popularity so much. And so over time, I just became the container person and just kept with it. And here I am today. <laughs> wow, what a good niche to fall into accidentally, like in yeah. terms of where the industry has gone. I remember when 
Docker was released, right, initially. And I know James Turnbull, who you might know, he is a awesome guy. And I really had a, a very high opinion of him and the things he was interested in. And when he went to work at Docker, I was like, oh, wow, I got to look at this. It, it must be real if James has gone there. And it was just like developer crack. It was so engaging and so fun to work with. And they just nailed developer experience, I think, like really nobody that I've ever seen. Yeah, when I talk about the history of containers, which I teach about a lot, I always like to say that I think about Docker as a usability company because there were containers before they came along, but Docker came along and made it so much easier to use that people just took off with it and it started to really grow in popularity and usage. So I, I like to think of them that way too. <laughs> we were using Solaris Zodes where I was working at the time. So yep. <laughs> I, I definitely knew that containers existed, but I knew that they were mainly leveraging things that were already in the kernel. But, but yeah, wow. And I spent my next few years working in ops after that, telling developers the reasons why we couldn't just start doing containers in production immediately. That's very interesting to me. <laughs> it's a, it's, there's that old meme. I'll have to see if I can find it and link it in the show notes. But it was the thing where somebody drew on a whiteboard, like using containers on your laptop and then using them in production. And, and the production side is this big list of like security and like networking and all these <laughs> things that you don't think about when you're just playing with the thing on your laptop. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen that, but I'm very curious to see it now. <laughs> I'll, I'll dig it up. Yeah, that's awesome. You and I met briefly, I think, at KubeCon in San Diego was the first time that I met you. And you were working for Oracle at the time. And we were both live tweeting talks there, which is something <laughs> that both of us do. And I remember I was sitting in the audience and like live tweeting and I was seeing your tweets too. <laughs> And I don't think I even followed you at the time. I think other people were like retweeting them or something. Or maybe I had just followed you after we met. I can't remember. But I was just so impressed by how good you were at live tweeting. And I was like, wow, I have got to raise my game. She is just nailing it. <laughs> Thanks. I tried early on. Uh, I started going to meetups and these community events to try to learn more about how the community was using containers and Kubernetes. Because yeah. it's hard to get a sense. It covers such a huge scope. So going to community events is a great way to do that. So I started going to them and I would try to take notes. And I had gone to my first conference a little bit before that and I had a talk there. And so I tweeted about it and that got a lot of attention. So I decided to start trying to tweet about the events I was going to show more people the kinds of things that I was learning. And it was just too much to do both at the same time. So I just started taking my notes as tweets. And so that's why I do that. <laughs> Me too. And yeah. I started doing this thing where a lot of times when I live tweet an event, I'll write a blog post or something about it afterwards. And the live tweets are like my sort of map for what to write later. And I love that idea of taking notes in public that other people yeah. can make use of too. It's also nice that you can attach pictures. Then I often also get asked to do event reports after I go to something or maybe like a, a presentation to recap the event. And so then I have my images and what they're about all ready to go in my tweets. So it's really nice. What do you think uh, makes a good live tweeter? That is a good 
question. I always try to arrive at the talk I want to see early so that I can get a good spot where I can take pictures. I always try to take a picture of every slide, especially the first slide. <laughs> Because <laughs> that I, I can go back and refer to that to get the name of the talk and the name of the presenter. I have a lot of things where I that I've developed where I'm watching a talk and if they have like their Twitter handle on each slide, immensely helpful. Attention to their pacing, <laughs> so that I can actually yeah. write while they're talking. So speakers who are listening to this, put your Twitter handle on all the slides, please. Please. Caslin and I are begging you. <laughs> It's so hard to go and find that while you're trying to tweet what they're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I always, I struggle with the thing where it's, I don't want to send out like a million little tweets. So I'll try to like batch stuff up. Or I'll try to come up with one tweet that sort of like encompasses several of the ideas that they've yep. just said. Yep. That's a good strategy, especially when they're moving really fast. <laughs> Your big sort of news of the moment is that you're now hosting a show on cloud native TV, which is called Field Study. And, Fields um, Tested. Oh, Fields Tested. I'm so sorry. All good. <laughs> I, I should have known that. But I'm, I'm excited about it. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what is the concept behind the show. Yeah. So it's uh, on cloudnative.tv, which is the CNCF's new Twitch channel. They've started up this little working group. If you're familiar with the CNCF and a little bit about how it works, they have various working groups and various topics within the cloud native space. So there's now this working group for their Twitch channel and they help to organize the shows that are going on it. They try to have a show every day and they just help out the folks who are running the shows. So this is my first time ever using Twitch and I'm learning a lot from it. But my goal with the show is to give people a chance to see cloud native technologies in action in something that they could do themselves. And then, so I think of it as a, a field test. You can try something out on your own and it may or may not make sense for the project. So the first one I did was spinning up a personal blog on Kubernetes, which there was a great meme on Twitter about very recently because <laughs> it's overkill. To just... I'm laughing because I've considered doing this at one mm -hmm. point while simultaneously recognizing how silly it is to consider doing it. Yes. So I tried to do this before realizing how silly of an idea it was. And along the way discovered that, which was fantastic. It's a great learning experience. So <laughs> I wanna do these cool little field tests where you can see whether it's a good use case for the technology or not, mm -hmm. but still in a personal level project. As much as I poke, poke fun at this idea sometimes, and I have tweeted about it before too, I. If you have a blog running on Kubernetes, please don't feel like we're picking on you. Like, like I really power think... to you. <laughs> exactly. And I think that they're really, um, you know, where I was coming from when I thought about doing it is I played around with Kubernetes a lot, but I wanted to use it for something that I cared about. And I didn't use it in production where I was working. And yeah, I could set up a little demo environment or something like that. And I did that. And I, I had Kubernetes clusters, but it's like none of them were something that I cared about being available. Exactly. Having that personal connection to the technology really helps as you're trying to learn it, I think. So connecting it to something that you care about, like your personal blog, is a great way to get going. When I first started trying to do it, though, I didn't know anything about websites. 
<laughs> funny thing, <laughs> a funny thing in my process to get here was I ended up skipping the only web development course in my schooling. <laughs> so I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know about DNS. I didn't know about web design. I didn't know what tools were out there. So I had to do all this research about all of that stuff just because I wanted to get some hands-on experience using Kubernetes was something I cared about. <laughs> yeah. Wow. First off, I'm just so impressed with the cloud native TV schedule. I, I saw it when it came out. I actually wrote a blog post about it that like I no one told me to write. I just saw this list of people in the shows and I just got so excited that I had to post something about it. I'll link to that post in the show notes too. But, but your show was one of the ones that really leapt out at me, even within a really awesome lineup. And the reason why is beyond the fact that you are rad is that it's so many times we talk about these tools or you read about a tool and I mean, I, I think that part of my experience in the cloud native space has been looking at the CNCF landscape and feeling like an idiot because I feel like I've played with five tools mm -hmm. on the landscape and there's so many others that the smart people that I know are experts in. And you can hear people talk about these tools and you can go and read some docs, but that's a whole different thing than seeing somebody actually build something. And that was the thing that got me the most excited is that you're actually taking these tools and like really making stuff. Yeah, actually at KubeCon EU Virtual 2020, I had a talk going over the cloud native landscape where I illustrated it out and I used this uh, amusement park analogy to talk about the different sections of the cloud native landscape. And I feel very much the same about it. Like I, there are so many different projects and categories on it and so little of it that I actually get to interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And so I wanted this Twitch show to be something a little bit different to give me what I wish that I had in learning these things, which is some way to get hands-on with them and to really understand what they do and what they're for and what that looks like, what it feels like to be part of that. So that's what I'm trying I, to do here. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I really do. I'm, I'm so excited about it. And I think that we are probably not the only ones who feel that way because everybody's got a limited amount of time. And I was just looking the other day at the list of the new sandbox projects. And it's just, it's just the, it just keeps coming. Yep, like there, is, yep. <laughs> there is no end to the amount of infrastructure projects and, and cloud native tools that are out there. Yeah. And there are a couple of other shows on the cloud native TV lineup that are trying to address some of that expansion of the cloud native landscape. And I yeah. think you also mentioned something really important there that I think ties really well into what we do in developer relations is that people don't have time to look at all of these different technologies. So even if you feel like the your knowledge of that thing is very basic, there are a lot of people out there that don't have that and who would appreciate it if you would give them a bit of a leg up as they're starting to learn it. So that's something I do a lot in uh, DevRel and that I think a lot of people, even students or people who are new to a technology can help out their peers by doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that one of the great ways that people can contribute to projects is by doing docs or making videos, just showing like, you know, go to a project, 
so many tools nowadays have some sort of a quick start, right? Where they like walk you through the super happy path of how to use something. Just make a video of you doing that, of you going through that thing. And that in itself is going to be valuable to a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm part of the special interest group for contributor experience in the Kubernetes project. And so this kind of thing is a, a lot of what we talk about is how do we make the experience of contributing to Kubernetes something that people can relate to and get started with? And it, it involves a lot of these concepts as well. So I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the contributor communications team too. So you beat cool. me to it. That's relatively new. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a sub project of the contributor experience special interest group in Kubernetes, which of course has been around for quite a while. But the Contributor Communications Group sub-project started a year and a half, two years ago, something like that. And our goal really, our, in our meetings recently, we've been talking a lot about this as I feel like more people have been becoming aware of our existence. But our goal as a group is to help communicate what cool things contributors are working on and to help contributors communicate with each other. There was this problem that several members of the community saw where there are just so many different venues for getting information about what's going on in the Kubernetes project. It's really hard for new contributors to understand where to look and how to learn and how to yeah. communicate with their peers. So that was one thing we wanted to come in and try to help address as best we could. So a few of the things that we do, we have a Twitter handle at Kate's Contributors, where we can post important contributor news. If there are surveys that people need to do, we've posted a couple of those recently information about a KubeCon, uh, especially the maintainer track. We try to make sure that everyone knows what's going on in the maintainer track at KubeCon through that uh, venue. Then there are also, there's a mailing list that we help to send messages out on. And when groups want to create a blog, even people within the Kubernetes community don't necessarily know how to use the Kubernetes blog site. <laughs> so. If they reach out to us, we'll try to help them through that process. We don't own the blog, but we'll still help them to create a draft, help them figure out where they need to put that draft, how to get reviews and all of that kind of thing. So to generally help make contributor communications smoother in the Kubernetes project. That's amazing. There's so many important things in that list. I, I bet a lot of folks who are listening saw the really awesome talk that Kat and Ian gave at the last KubeCon, and they mentioned the team in there. And it seemed like a lot of the struggles that were going on were people just not understanding how much the community was growing and the fact that there were more and more people joining the community who weren't like that plugged in group of people on Twitter mm -hmm. talking about Kubernetes all the time. Yep. That's definitely a challenge that the, the project has faced as it has grown. So Kubernetes just had its seventh birthday in June. Happy so, birthday, Kubernetes. Yeah. Happy birthday, <laughs> Kubernetes. <laughs> really hasn't been around for that long. And I I'm, remember... I'm not going to sing. <laughs> you don't want me to sing. We didn't miss it anyway. It's a belated birthday, so I think yep. you're excused. But I remember in, I think my first KubeCon that I ever went to was in 2016. And at that point, it was small enough to fit into the, the hotel next to the convention center. <laughs> These days, it'll take up a whole convention center. Yeah. So it's grown so immensely, so quickly, that for the people that are managing the open source project, 
that's really hard to keep up with. You start developing processes, and as soon as you get the process in place, it's out of date because there's more people that you need to, to work with now, and so you need a new process. So it's definitely really hard to keep up with the rate of growth in the Kubernetes project. There was just a thread the other day where people were talking about the idea of like auto closing tickets after a certain amount of time. And it was a, a fascinating thread. I'll have to dig it up and link it in the show notes because it just, it felt like some of these maintainers are just like getting crushed, right? That, that there's just so much going on and so many issues that people are opening that it's really difficult to keep up. Yeah, it takes an amazing amount of time to be a maintainer in an open source project. I recently read uh, Working in Public by Nadia Eggball, which is a really great book about open source work. And in the first chapter, she has a great quote, which I don't have in front of me right now, but that says something about how you might think that the, the main challenge for maintainers would be attracting more people in to help them with their work. But actually, a lot of the time, the challenge is managing the huge amount of interaction that they're getting from the community, a huge number of issues to review, uh, a huge number of new contributors to train. It's great to have them, but there's still a lot of work that goes into that. I thought that was really interesting. I, I imagine that the ratio of issues to pull requests for a lot of Kubernetes is pretty high. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So I went to my first monthly Kubernetes community meeting this month, which the contributor experience or contributor communications team was mentioned there because mm -hmm. there are some APIs being deprecated and oh, people were talking about scary. this. And immediately someone said, hey, we got to write a blog post. Somebody talk to contributor communications. Yep. That's great to see that people are starting to think of us when they start to plan these things out. And as you saw, if anyone has checked out Ian and Kat's talk from KubeCon, and it's on YouTube now, we'll have to put a link to that in the show notes too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As they said, it can be really tough for the people in the project to figure out how to word things such that they are useful to the end users who will be reading it, as well as the community members who are reading it and to make sure that people know that it's out there. And so there's all of these challenges with creating even just a blog post about, especially about API deprecations, because if you word that wrong, people are going to panic. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because my instinct was to go like tweet about it. And then I immediately thought, oh my gosh, I could just do the exact same thing that Ian and Kat were talking about because mm -hmm. I know so little about this and somebody explained it and I thought I understood it, but maybe I'm not the best person to be exposing people to the fact that this is happening. Both ends of the spectrum can be challenging, really. If you know nothing about the thing, that's one way that communicating can be challenging. You can say it exists and you might word it wrong and people might panic. But also on the other side of it, if you're too deep into it, you might think, oh, this isn't a big deal. I know everything about it. And you might post uh, something that could also make people panic. So it's really beneficial to have a lot of eyes on these things and have more people aware of what's going on and reviewing it so that we can try to craft the best messaging. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's important to remember, this is some life advice for me, from me, for people who are on Twitter, that you don't have to tweet a thing. That, <laughs> That's <like>, true. <laughs> you can think about a thing and want to tweet it and then decide that it's better not to tweet it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's something I've gotten some uh, practice with during the last year when, during the pandemic, when 
everything has been a bit different. <laughs> People yeah. are paying attention to Twitter differently and using Twitter differently. And we're all at home all the time. So the, the line between work and home is a little bit more blurred. And so I feel like I've been extra cautious in the last year of being aware of what I'm tweeting and what I'm uh, talking about online. That's a, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, we got sidetracked, but it was awesome. But I actually <laughs> wanted to ask you a little bit more about your show. So, oh, yeah. um, so when you're thinking about the things that you want to talk about on your show, and, and again, this is the, the building things and letting people see the tools at work, what, how is it that you're thinking about what to show people? How do you approach that? Yeah, so my work as a developer advocate does a lot to inform that. So as a developer advocate, I am a technical engineer. I am within the engineering organization at Google. So I need to have a good understanding of the technology. Uh, and then I also need to build a good understanding of the use cases around the technology and how developers are actually going to perceive it and use it. So that means that I have to get hands-on and understand the thing myself as best I can. But right. I don't have the benefit of being in a team where Maybe you're using that technology in production or you're testing it out to use with your project. Instead, I have to listen to customers and users and hear what they're doing with it and try my best to kind of mold that into something that I can do and explore and build expertise in. So a lot of that exploration is where some of these ideas come from. So our first episode, again, was creating a WordPress blog to run on Kubernetes. That's something that I bring up periodically because it's something that I did before a long time ago because I wanted to, but I also learned some really cool things from it about taking an application that wasn't designed to run on containers. WordPress has been around for a while. <laughs> it's designed to run on VMs or some other type of infrastructure, not really containers. So there are some little things that you might not be aware of if you're not aware of containers, like using persistent storage and yeah. understanding how you're going to hook up a database to it because it needs a database. So there's a lot of things about that example that appeal to a lot of different use cases. So that was a good one for me to test out again because it's a great thing for me to talk to users about. It can relate to a lot of different use cases. I've got some other ones coming up where I'm looking to engage with some of my, some of my peers in their areas of focus and learn more about what they're doing. I've been really interested in security and understanding a little bit how that works in Kubernetes, different yeah. use cases of using Kubernetes, and then a different cloud native landscape projects that I normally don't get to interact with very much. So these are the kinds of things I'm thinking of. That's awesome. You also are a CNCF ambassador. Can you explain to folks who might not be aware of that what a CNCF ambassador does? Yeah, so the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, if anyone out there is not familiar with it, is a nonprofit organization that has a mission related to helping with the adoption of cloud native technologies and supporting open source cloud native technologies. So it's hard often to describe the relationship between the CNCF and the projects, because it's not really like they're the owners of the projects, but they do provide some support to the projects. For example, they recommend, uh, they have a, a code of conduct that all of their projects have to take up. And then they have some enhancement 
I think there was a recent thing with enhancement proposals or something that they gave some guidance to their projects on how they should take those in. So they have a variety of different expertise as well as sometimes providing budgetary support for marketing and helping to get more people interested in the project. So there are a variety of things that the CNCF does to help open source projects. So CNCF ambassadors are often people who are involved with the open source projects that are uh, part of the CNCF. And they're people who started to become leaders in the community. People started to look to them for uh, information about running their projects or information about a specific project and how that relates to the CNCF. And so folks at the CNCF start to see what they're doing. Oftentimes they're runners of meetups uh, or things like that. And uh, so then the CNCF wants to help support those leaders and those voices that a lot of people are listening to. And so they give them this ambassador title, which basically means, yeah, the CNCF knows that I'm talking about this and <laughs> they're okay with it is how I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that those programs are great. I'm actually um, a HashiCorp ambassador. Oh, and yeah. I know that a lot of other companies have, you know, or organizations have used that sort of model. The Docker captains seem to be a, a super successful program. And I think it's great because it, it just recognizes the contributions those folks are making in the community, right? And also gives you a new level of visibility as well. You were already talking about whatever projects you were talking about probably, but then once you get the CNCF ambassador title and you start talking about that, people might ask you about the CNCF itself, uh, which you might not even have known that much about before, <laughs> but they give you these tools to better understand the CNCF itself and to help explain that to others, which I think is really nice. Oh, that's super cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back on the communication thing in Kubernetes, after I saw Kat and Ian's talk, one of the things that was that I started thinking about is that there's not really a product manager role inside of Kubernetes. And I'm used to working <laughs> in companies that as part of the software development process, there's some someone or a group of people who are clearly identified as product managers and they're not necessarily the ones doing the communicating they usually do some of it but they're that person that has the big list of things and they're like did the communication go out check yep. and i wonder like that product management function seems to be split like among different groups of people yeah so this is something i think about a lot with the kubernetes project is that basically the Kubernetes open source project is a giant software development enterprise of itself that's being run entirely by volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all figuring out as they go, often they're developers or engineers who cared about the technology and then they wanna help make it a reality. And so they get into the project for that. There's also non-code contribution, which we also had a, a panel on at uh, KubeCon. So there are people from all sorts of roles within tech who are drawn to Kubernetes. And so really this concept of roles within the Kubernetes project is very much informed by the types of people who are drawn to the project and become volunteers to help work on it. And as they see problems within the project and they try to solve those problems, they develop new roles to try to help with that. Of course, early on in the project, the steering committee was established. 
So that's the top level of Kubernetes project management, I feel like, is mm -hmm. the steering committee. And then there are over 30 different SIGs or special interest groups, I think, in the Kubernetes project. So each of those also has its own set of co-chairs. They usually try to have at least two so that they have HA. <laughs> High availability <laughs> co-chairs. And that's another thing that's really important as we think about the roles of managing this large open source project is making sure that it's run in a sustainable way because everybody's a volunteer. Yeah. If something happens and they need to go, then they need to go. There's nothing <laughs> really to keep them there except for their love for the project and the community. So we need to make sure wherever we can that we have fail safes in place. So there's the steering committee, there are the SIG chairs, and then within each SIG, there are those contributors who are able to spend more time with those projects and do more of the, the contribution and they become kind of leaders and they often end up shadowing the chairs and taking over that. So that's how the, the management structure within Kubernetes works. And then this PM role like you're talking about is within the contributor experience special interest group, I feel like. A lot of the people who are interested in that type of work tend to land there and they look at those problems, like you're saying, that uh, a PM would normally do, caring about making sure the emails go out, all of that, and they want to solve those. And so this, the contributor experience group just works on those problems. Gotcha. So when you say PM, it, I think you're talking about project management? I um, think so. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually, no, decide. it's okay. I actually was thinking more about product management. So it seems to me that the the SIGs are more the people who carry through like what mm. I would think of product management in terms of like, yeah, you, might be right. you know, what's going to go into the project and things like that. Yep. The chairs of each SIG, there's, for example, SIG networking, SIG multi-cluster, SIG testing, all sorts of different special interests for different areas of the project. And so, yeah, the kind of the roadmap of that piece of the project comes from that group and largely from those chairs. So yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, awesome. It's uh, it's it's really, I think it can be challenging for someone who's not super embedded in this big thing to understand how it works. So this has Absolutely. been super cool. I've not talked about this with a guest before and I think that hopefully there will be some folks who will learn some things about how the, the project itself works, which is important, right? Because all of that stuff impacts us as users and contributors and anyone who interacts with the project. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, like we said, we both are developer advocates. I've been like working in DevRel for about three years now, and you've been at it for a while. There, it seems like there's a lot of a lot more interest in developer relations now and developer advocacy. It seems like um, that companies are hiring a lot for DevRel folks, and it seems like there's people who are engineers who are considering like, should I make the jump and go into DevRel? And I'm wondering what kind of advice you would have for, for people who are thinking about maybe doing that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there's been a big kind of explosion in interest in the field of developer relations. And one thing that I kind of think of as the core of developer relations is that a lot of the folks that I meet in developer relations work doing the same stuff anyway in their whatever jobs they had before developer relations. I feel like a lot of developer relations is filling these gaps that we see between the user and the product. 
And there are a lot of people out there, I think, who just feel naturally drawn to that space, to conferences, to working with customers, but also still having a deep understanding of their products and trying to help make those products better. And there just wasn't really a role for that before. You could be in support where you could work more directly with the customers and solving their needs. You could be an engineer on the product where you could be directly influencing that, but you might not get as much view into the customer. And then there are roles in between, but this kind of sweet spot of uh, tying together customer use cases and helping them as well as helping the product improve didn't really exist in in name, I feel like, before developer relations. I think a lot of folks who are interested in developer relations kind of gravitate normally, like naturally toward it. Yeah. <laughs> they start seeing the work of folks who have that job title and they're like, oh, that's the thing that I want to do. And it gives it a name. And a lot of companies are starting to see the value in it as well. Oh, a lot of the the big companies are starting to have developer relations people and you see them very publicly. They do a lot of talks, they're very vocal on social media, all of that kind of thing. So a lot of companies are starting to see that and starting to want that for their own businesses, which I think is really exciting. So one of the things that's been interesting to me is that it it seems like not only are more people hiring DevRel people, but that that function is showing up in organizations maybe earlier than it would have. Like I'm employee number four, I think, at the company that I'm at right now. And um, it blew my mind that my boss wanted to hire a developer advocate as as employee number four. But when I talked to him, he had super good reasons for it. Like he understood the need to communicate with the practitioners. In our case, one of our big customer personas, I guess you might say, is the platform engineer, right? And like, I think it's the same it's similar with those people and with the people doing product engineering that a lot of people who are in those kind of roles have really good bullshit detectors, right? And and you aren't necessarily going to get to them and engage with them with the kind of marketing that people were doing in our industry five or 10 years ago. Yeah, that's absolutely a big thing that comes up in DevRel is this concept of people don't want to be sold to, especially engineers, they want to do their job better. And so to market to them effectively, you have to understand what their job is and what they're trying to do and try to help them do that job better. So that's a lot of what DevRel is trying to do. Glad to hear that uh, it sounds like people are starting to get a sense of what DevRel is. That's always something that I try to address when I meet someone new and I tell them my job title and they look at me this kind of confused look. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know what that means. Like, I know, I'll explain. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that one of the other interesting things to me has always been like, where does DevRel sit on an org chart? And I, I think that it's um, it tends to be like either under marketing or under product or engineering like you are. And that's definitely the thing that I would prefer if I had to choose between those two is being under product and engineering, because part of what I want to do is make the product better as opposed to developing sales leads. And I want to make it super clear. There's nothing wrong with marketing, right? There's nothing wrong with selling software. If companies aren't selling their software and services, you're not going to have a job, but, but that's just not what drives me personally. And But there, there's this third alternative that I think I'm starting to see a little bit, which is where 
DevRel kind of has its own seat at the table. So maybe there's a VP of DevRel and they're not reporting up through marketing or reporting up through the, the engineering side. It's really interesting to see this discipline evolve over time. Yeah. Because I think uh, a few years ago, it was all about developer evangelists. <laughs> that was a yeah. common term. Yeah. And then people started to move away from that term because it has a lot of questionable connotations. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And a lot of folks felt like you're describing here that they are coming from an engineering background and maybe their uh, primary concern, what they really want to do is to help improve the product and stay close to that technical capability. But like someone in my very first job told me, I think the first day of my first job, we had a presentation from sales and the person said, whose job is it to sell our product? And everyone was like, sales? And he's like, no, it's yours. <laughs> You're all part of sales. <laughs> and I always think about that with this. <laughs> yeah, I have literally been at a job where I was laid off and it was specifically because we weren't selling enough to support the amount of employees that we had. So from that perspective, it is everybody's job. But like you said, I think that traditionally the groups that we're talking about, like DevRel people tend to come, you know, from the op side or from product engineering, one of the two, that that as we said, those people don't like being marketed to. So what makes you think that they want to be on a marketing team? It's odd. But it does work for some people. I know some people who report up through marketing and are super happy doing it. And I think that a lot of it depends on whether the leadership understands the value of what we do and how it's different from maybe like top of funnel marketing. Yeah, there's a huge breadth of DevRel professionals who yeah. they range from being really close to the product and most of their work is filing bugs and checking out products and giving feedback and that kind of work to people who just give talks at conferences all the time and our social media presences and things. And that's just the spectrum of DevRel ranges between those points. And I think like you're saying, whether it's in engineering or marketing speaks more to how leadership sees the value of DevRel. Do yeah. they see it as a valuable marketing tool that's going to sell more product? Or do they see it as a valuable function that's going to make the products better, therefore enabling them to sell more? So depends on where they're their priorities are and how they see DevRel. Yeah, I could see doing both. I could see yep. having people on both teams. Yeah. So when I do talk to people who are thinking about making that transition, one of the sort of concerns that I think comes up a lot is what is what is going to happen to my career, right? If I'm an engineer and I've got 10 years of engineering experience and I suddenly make this leap into DevRel, am I going to be able to stay in touch with being an engineer? Am I going to be able to under, understand still what those people go through on a day-to-day -day basis? And also, can I go back, right? If it yep. doesn't work out. Am I going to be locked out? <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely something I thought about and that I hear others talking about as they consider that transition is am I going to lose my credibility as a yeah. an engineer and not be able to be an engineer again? Because a lot of people who move into DevRel really like being engineers. It's just that they really want to help other engineers as well. <laughs> yeah. So that can be really scary. And I think it depends a lot on, again, how the leadership at the company where you're thinking about 
becoming a DevRel person thinks about the role, how far away they'll move you from the actual engineering work. But regardless of whether you're in marketing or engineering, regardless of what your role entails, I think a key part of developer relations is to try and get this hands-on experience and understanding of use cases and tie it back into the product as best you can, which kind of comes back to the fields tested thing. A lot of that kind of there work is what I'm trying to do there. <laughs> I, I think that probably my biggest advice to people who are interested in doing this stuff and are in those other kind of roles right now is to make some content, write some blog posts, make some videos. Or maybe do the other thing. If you're currently doing a lot of content and making videos and things, maybe try uh, doing a hands-on project. There you go. And getting more involved with the product. No, I, th I think that's an excellent point. And I'm somebody who, I think it's four years now since I've been an SRE. And there definitely are times where I feel like I'm, I'm getting rusty or out of touch. And part of it too, and I think this is one way to think about it, is that a lot of it has to do too with what kind of products your company's making, right? Like I've worked, since I've been in DevRel, I worked at a place that made observability tools. I've worked at a place that did chaos engineering. I worked at a place that did incident response. And now I'm at a shop that's making Kubernetes tools. And those are all very different. And there are different levels of technical skill that are required for those things. And what I'm actually planning to do is, is to do some of the CKA training because I feel like I have a decent understanding of Kubernetes, but it's still pretty surface level and that I could go a lot deeper. And I feel like looking at the things that you have to know to, to pass the certified Kubernetes administrator test would sharpen me up and help a lot. Yeah, fun fact. I failed the CKA the first time I tried to take it. <laughs> I have I tried a feeling to take you're it. not the only one. Yeah, it's pretty common. I tried to take it a, a few years ago, and it's a very hands-on exam. Yeah. So you really need to practice all of those hands-on skills of working with uh, Kubernetes. And I had some of them down pretty well, but there's a lot of depth that it goes into. And at the time, there weren't really practice tests, so I also wasn't familiar with the format of the test and I'd never tried to get a certification before. So there's a lot of different things that you should try to improve on if you want to go for the, the CKA. And one of them is understanding the format and understanding what you'll physically have to do to partake in the test. And the other is understanding the actual technology, which I think there's really good guides and resources for these days. Yeah, I've actually been looking into it some, and it seems like things have really come a long way. There are some places where, you know, a lot, a lot more people writing books and offering classes and things to train you. But they're, they've also added, um, so I can't remember the name of the company that offers the service, but I'll dig it up and put it in the show notes. Unless you, Caslin, there's a company that, that actually simulates the, the hands-on part of the test. And they've now built that into taking the test, right? So like when you pay to take the test, you actually get a couple of those sessions. That's just yes. part of what they offer you, which I think I is fantastic. Yeah, I just saw that announcement recently and I was so excited about it. That's a fantastic addition. Yeah, and I think my experience anyway has been that even if you don't end up like taking the test, even if you don't end up getting certified, that a lot of times these 
kind of training programs that lead to a certification, if they're done well anyway. If the certification is really valuable and really shows the skills that you need, I think that just the practice that you get studying can help you a lot. One of the things that I did a few years ago is I took a class that was a prep class for the Red Hat certification. And I never ended up taking the test and I didn't intend to in the first place, but it really helped me brush up on a lot of Linux things that I had forgotten about or had even changed, you know, like I didn't know a lot about systemd and, and I knew a lot more about it after I finished that. And all of this stuff that you're describing is exactly why I'm excited for Certs Magic, which is one of the other shows on cloudnative.tv. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it... being run by Siam. Yeah. Yeah. And the focus of it is on the certs that are offered by the Linux Foundation and talking about those and how to get them. I there have been there should have been two episodes at this point. There was one uh, recently that I still haven't watched. Gosh, so. I have to go back and watch those. So shout out to Siam because he has just been super kind and he really just seems to have so much passion and enthusiasm for Kubernetes and just seems to be doing so much, like making so much content. I, I honestly am a little, sometimes I see what he's doing and I'm like, yeah, I can't keep up with this guy. It's impressive. Yep. Love to see the way that people in the community just like to help each other. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check out his show for sure. I think that it's definitely something I want to pursue is at least like doing the prep part, but I'd, I'd like to take the test as well. You mentioned earlier that you've done some drawing, you've made some comments about comics, excuse me, about cloud native stuff. That is another talent that I'm jealous of is people who could draw. It's not something I could do. How do you think that explaining things in a visual manner like that helps at least some people? Uh -huh. I actually created a whole lightning talk on this once where I did a bunch oh my of gosh. psychology research on why that helps people. That's amazing. Uh, so much fun. So I did a bunch of looking around like Google Scholar, find me some academic articles yeah. on uh, the psychology of learning at one point, and I was looking for resources regarding my hypothesis of analogies. I was focusing on analogies. Do analogies help people learn? And how? And why? And so I found some good resources about the importance of storytelling and how that helps people to learn. And kind of the main concept, I think, is that when you connect something new to something old, it sticks better. Wow. So you're learning some kind of new technology. If you have nothing to connect it with, if you're like, oh, great, gRPC lets you do remote function calls. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I guess that's what it does. <laughs> you're not going to remember that in five minutes in, in a week, are you? Yeah. <laughs> but if you see, oh, I can use Kubernetes to run a personal blog, not that I should, but it seems like it would be a fun experience, then you're more likely to remember that because you're tying right. it to something that matters to you. Again, we're coming back to that too. We're yeah. coming back to all kinds of things. So I have to tell you, <laughs> we're like 56 minutes into recording and you just stumbled into some topics that are super fascinating for me. And I'm like, <laughs> gonna try not to go on a, a 20 minute rant about uh, the importance of storytelling in tech. But it's something I think about a lot because I think that humans have a basic need to consume stories and to tell them, right? And I think that that's 
one of the best ways that we can communicate these ideas, whether it's through images or, you know, through telling a story in a conference talk or whatever. I think that that having some understanding of how narrative works and having that be something that you're intentional about, right, is a really good way to help people. Yeah, I start so many books and so many technical tutorials and I get maybe a paragraph in and my mind wanders elsewhere and I totally <laughs> lose it. So <laughs> that's one reason uh, that I started doing the comics is if this was cute and I just wanted to look at the pretty pictures, I would definitely keep going through the tutorial and learn the thing, including kind of anchors to help people keep paying attention to what you're doing, varying things a little bit really helps. Yeah. A lot of my favorite talks that I've seen have been from that angle of somebody telling like a personal story about themselves that the technology relates to. And I just, my last episode was with Kelsey and he does such a great job of that. I saw one of his talks where I can't even remember what it was about now, but, but he was talking about a technology and he was talking about his experience using it for the first time, like in an ops role and what they did and how they had to fix things. And it was just, I just was like on the edge of my seat the whole time. I was just so pumped up to hear about what happened. It's very much that adage of People won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Oh, wow. And he made you feel like you were part of the action. And so you remember it, even though you don't remember what he said. The important concept still stuck with you because uh, you were engaged with it, emotionally engaged with it. The other thing I love that, that you mentioned is, is that idea of looking at scientific research. And I did a talk actually about some of the science behind how being on call impacts people, which I thought was super interesting because a lot of people have anecdotal stories about the pain they've been through when they've been on call, but like people have been studying that stuff for decades, right? Like they've been like doing studies on doctors and, and people in other professions that have been on call. And that was that was something that I wanted to learn more about. And I feel like I feel like we, as people in tech, sometimes assume that the world started when like the first compiler was created or something, and that we just know everything and that there's like nobody outside of tech who can tell us anything or teach us anything. And that's not true at all. Yeah, absolutely. Ian Coldwater just posted something on Twitter the other day about they're working on a talk about the intersection of expertise, how you don't have to know everything to accomplish something if you work with someone else. So that's very much what we're talking about here too. If we look outside of tech to different uh, skill sets and different areas, we can still learn a lot and build on our own knowledge and uh, make up for the gaps that we have in our understanding. Wow. This has been so much fun. Um, I we, we just are like hitting on so many of my favorite things to talk about. Before we go, we did have one listener question from Faisal, I think it is. I hope I pronounced that right. It's at QAM underscore F on Twitter. And they asked, how do you go about putting Kubernetes storage and networking together? It needs to be easier. The public cloud networking element is the hardest to understand. I agree with that comment so much. <laughs> <laughs> Same. It's just so hard. <laughs> and it's very much what we're talking about here, too. I, ever since I saw that question, because it was asked on Twitter, so yeah. I saw it before this. <laughs> but <laughs> ever since I saw that, I've been thinking about how 
Kubernetes is this middle technology. A lot of the, the demos that I do about technology, uh, about Kubernetes, I don't even necessarily have to know anything about the application I'm running. So we talked about the personal blog example. I don't know anything about web development as we established, right? <laughs> but I can still run it on Kubernetes because it's the intersection of those two skill sets. If you know a little bit about web development and Kubernetes, uh, you'll have a little bit of a, a better idea of what you're doing going into that than I did. <laughs> and then there's the other side of that, kind of the infrastructure side that Kubernetes relates into, where Kubernetes tries to abstract away some of that in that they give you this cluster of computing resources, but storage and networking are outside of that. And it's kind of awkward to try to figure out how do they fit into this abstraction. Yeah. Storage is one of my favorite topics in Kubernetes because it's so important. Uh, there are so many stateful apps out there that need their data. And then when you start talking about these distributed systems, these distributed clusters, where is that data going to live? And what's the latency going to be like for interacting with that data? And containers, often the, the best, quote unquote, best use cases for them are ephemeral. They don't have storage. So what does it really look like to have a great use case with containers that has uh, stateful storage? So in Kubernetes, we talked in, the, in my show recently while we were doing the WordPress deployment on Kubernetes, we talked about using persistent volumes and persistent volume claims in Kubernetes to help manage that and also using potentially external storage sources for that. The more common use cases and generally best practices, especially with databases, is to use some kind of managed database service because that's not something Kubernetes does for you. <laughs> doesn't do a great job of it. So just use a service that's meant for that tends to be the recommendation. And the networking is something that I personally find very intimidating and don't know enough about. And it gets especially complicated in the cloud, depending on where you're coming from. Everything in Kubernetes, I feel like is so, or any form of tech is so based in your perspective, where you're coming from to understand that technology. Like we said, you got to tie something new to something old. So if you're coming from a data center where you had to deal with actual cabling between machines and the data center, it's going to be really hard to wrap your head around being in the cloud where everything is connected through the internet. You're connecting to it through the internet, but technically it's a database somewhere where all of that cabling still exists. And so all of that can be really difficult to figure out. And I don't have a great answer for how to manage that networking piece. I'm still Wait learning myself. I, I really... <laughs> expected you to solve all of our problems here. Nope, not what I'm here I, for. I'm here to learn. I, I have to say that these are a couple of the areas that like I find that I understand the least too, like storage and, and networking specifically. Mm. And I'm very much that person that you're talking about, right? Like I'm used to the old data centers. I've uh, Most of the networking that I dealt with was host level networking. So what does the routing table on this VM look like? That was like my world for a long time and the kinds of things I thought about. And so getting my head around CNIs and, and all that stuff is really intimidating to me, honestly. And see, that is not my world. <laughs> yeah. I recently had to run a Kubernetes cluster. I had a bunch of Intel NUCs, next unit oh, yeah. computing, I think they're called. So there's these little computers and I had three of them and I hooked them up to be a Kubernetes cluster at home. And then I had to get IPs to connect to it from my computer wirelessly. <laughs> and I was like, what? I'm not in the cloud. I can't just do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was hard. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that I think that the best advice I have for you, Faisal, is to. Uh, I mean, I feel like there's this sort of this sort of lie that you're going to be able to have Kubernetes on a cloud provider and you're going to be able to just lift and shift that to any other cloud provider or be multi-cloud or hybrid or, or whatever you want to call it. But I think that to me, I think the managed Kubernetes services for the most part are super smart for most teams. It depends, but using those tools and using the tools that your cloud provider has as opposed to trying to come up with some other way of doing things is probably going to be your best bet because those things are going to be documented and other people are going to be doing it that way too. Yeah, a lot of cloud providers put a lot of effort and money into making their documentation on these types of topics. So if you have the ability to work within a cloud provider, then you'll probably get great guidance there. But if you're worrying about these multi-environment type of situations, as a lot of businesses are, it's it can be pretty difficult to figure out how they all connect and what are yeah. the best technologies to tie it all together, which is one reason that it's nice that the nonprofit CNCF helps to manage all of these open source projects, because that's a nice place to go to understand a broader landscape of what's available for cloud native technology that doesn't necessarily come from a specific cloud provider. Cool. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Kazlid. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. And we talked, of course, about your show. Is there anything else that you want to mention to folks that you have coming up or how to find you on social media or anything like that? Yeah, I probably should have mentioned way earlier for all of the people who didn't make it to this point. But <laughs> <laughs> thus far, it's on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific. Coming up, I'll give you a little preview. I'm hoping to explore running a game server on Kubernetes. Oh, rad. A, a colleague who's an expert on that. I'm very excited about that. And then there was a capture that, the Does flag. that colleague happen to be Mark Mandel? It does happen to be Mark Mandel. Amazing. <laughs> I actually want to have Mark come on the podcast to talk about game servers. Yeah, he's such a fantastic expert. So I'm going to have him. And a rule that I'm trying to implement with fields tested is that it has to be fields tested. Fields is my last name, so it has to be me actually doing the thing when I have an expert on, and I am bad at following directions. So <laughs> this is going to be a challenge. So I, I yeah, no, I, I've <laughs> talked to, actually, I met Mark in person the first time at San Diego as well, and we talked about, about game servers some, and I personally, as someone who plays games, find the idea of gaming infra so fascinating because it's so, cool. so complex and yeah. the scaling challenges that those people have are very different than what a lot of applications have. Yeah. I would dive into Windows containers and Windows and Linux and gaming, but won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and then another right. thing I'm hoping to have coming up is a look at Kubernetes security through a capture the flag that was held at KubeCon 2019 that I missed. I was so sad that I missed it, but it's online. So I'm going to try to do it live. And oh, have amazing. Do so you're going to do the CTF. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It'll be my first one. I've never done one. So that sounds super <laughs> fun. All right. We'll definitely have to have to put a link to the, the cloud native TV in the show notes. And Kazlin, what is your Twitter handle? At Kazlin Fields. There we go. Straightforward. <laughs> All right. Again, thanks so much for coming on. This was super fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
KubeCuddle is created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 